Good morning. It's good to be with you all here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship. I'm just going to pull up my PowerPoint. Say, I'm sure uh, excited about the resurrection as I was walking up here. I heard my knee cracking. And uh, that's one of those subtle reminders that we are not home yet, right? So maybe uh, you're going through something today and you're looking forward to the resurrection as well. Bob did a wonderful job in Sunday school and he talked about how Paul was preaching the resurrection. So it's something that uh, we are looking forward to for sure. Is that, uh, does everyone hear that? Uh, yeah. All right. Well, dear ones, in this message that I'm going to be preaching to you this morning that you see on the screen here, we are going to be challenged to ask the question that you see on the screen, can I really say to others, follow me? And what I mean by that is, can we say to others, follow me, in the sense of following my doctrines and my deeds, and therefore you'll know something of what it is to follow the apostles in Jesus Christ? That's because today, yes, we're going to learn that believers are called to be representatives of Jesus Christ and to live in such a way that we let our light shine so that men and women may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. So we're going to learn today that, yes, we have to be not just hearers of the word, but we have to be doers. It's an example to those who are perishing, but also even the new convert. Now, this is what Paul, in this section of Timothy, was doing. He was giving kudos and congratulations to Timothy for being a follower of his doctrine, but also his lifestyle. And so as we look here in 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11, we see a stark contrast between what Paul says of Timothy and what he said last time regarding the false teachers in Ephesus. Remember last time, the false teachers, Paul gave a vice list because they acted like the unregenerate. But now Paul is going to give a virtue list of himself and Timothy who followed after him. Listen to what Paul says. And by the way, by implication, we are to follow the same way. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 11, Paul said, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, At Iconium and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Now, dear ones, I want to begin by looking at this term teaching. Paul gave kudos to Timothy for following his teaching. And the reason why the teaching, the term there, didaskalia, is put forward is because doctrine is always primary in our life. Let me say that again. Doctrine is always primary in the life of the believer. Now, we all know that there can be the case where someone has their doctrine down, but they still don't have their deeds down. They don't live it out. But it is never the case that you can have the deeds that are pleasing to Christ if you don't first have the doctrine. So having right belief always precedes having right action in the Scriptures. And that's why... Paul begins with that. Timothy followed his teaching or his doctrine. Now, there's another point that needs to be made here. Notice Paul doesn't say, hey, you followed the teaching of Jesus Christ. Now, certainly, Timothy was following the doctrines of Jesus Christ by following Paul. But Paul says, my teaching. And that's important because, remember, Jesus himself said 
to his apostles in Matthew 10.40, whoever receives you, receives me. So if you receive the doctrines of the apostles, because these men were the personal spokesmen for Jesus Christ, there's another echo there I heard, you were following Christ himself if you follow the words of the apostles. Now, this is important because in our day and age, you have people that will call themselves, for example, red-letter Christians. Now, red-letter Christians, how many in here have ever heard of Tony Campolo? Tony Campolo is a communist, and he started a group called Red Letter Christians. Well, he doesn't like the doctrines of the apostles, so he claims to follow Christ by only following the red letters that you'll have in your English Bible when you're reading like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what you and I have to know is if you reject the words of the apostles, according to Jesus himself, you're rejecting Christ himself. That's what we have to know. Now, notice right after the teaching, the doctrine comes the deeds. Notice the conduct. Paul mentions that Timothy followed his conduct and purpose. And by the way, this doesn't mean that Timothy did this once and now it's sufficient. Implied is there's an exhortation that he will continue to do this. Now, why does Paul talk about his conduct? Because good doctrine always leads to good deeds. The apostle Paul knew that, and Timothy was being congratulated for following not only Paul's doctrines, but his lifestyle. Now, I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 4.17. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. And as you're turning there, you can look up at verse 16 as well, because there Paul said to the Corinthians, follow me. Literally, he says, be imitators of me. But you're going to find in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul gives a very good example of someone that they can follow to know the doctrines and deeds that he had taught, namely Timothy. Notice 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, notice what did Timothy do to the Corinthians? He taught them Paul's ways. The term in Greek there, if I recall, is hodos, which is the road. The road of Paul or his ways has to do with both his doctrine and his deed. Brothers and sisters, we have to have both. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in our applications. Now, notice right after the conduct, Paul mentions the fact that Timothy followed his purpose. The term purpose there is prothesis, and it literally means the plan ahead. So if you're going to ask Paul, what is your plan up and coming this next week? It was to preach the gospel. If you asked him, hey, Paul, what's your plan this coming month? Preach the gospel. What's your plan for this coming year? Preach the gospel. No matter what kind of hardships came, no matter what kind of persecutions came, the apostle Paul was about preaching the excellencies of Jesus Christ. Timothy followed the same. And so you and I are to do the same. No matter what persecutions or difficulties come our way, the plan ahead is to always preach and proclaim the greatness of Christ through our doctrine and through our deed. To this, notice Paul added that he followed his faith. Now, faith here could be the objective doctrines of the faith, or it could be more of the subjective following Jesus Christ daily, trusting in salvation and provision. And it's probably more of the latter because... Here, the objective standards of the doctrines are listed already through his teaching. Okay, but again, faith is always both the objective content 
and subjectively appropriating it. Now, notice patience. Patience has to do with being long-suffering in light of persecution. In some sense, it's very synonymous with perseverance. But sometimes we're patient even when not being persecuted. Life can be difficult. And that's what Paul was. He was patient in the Lord, and so was Timothy. Notice Timothy had the love that Paul did. The whole goal of our Christian walk is to love the Lord our God with all our being and to love our neighbors ourselves. That's where sound doctrine ultimately leads. Notice right after that he adds to this perseverance. Timothy persevered the way Paul did. The term that's used here, you may want to jot down, it's hupomone. Hupomone. How many in here remember reading in John chapter 15, Jesus saying that you should remain in the vine? Remember, he was the true vine, and if you remain in him, you'll bear much fruit. Well, the term remain, meno, is the verb. Here you have the noun version of that, monet. But added to it is a prefix, hupo, meaning hyper, hyper remaining. So literally, Paul says Timothy followed his hyper remaining. So no matter what difficulty came to the apostle Paul... No matter what kind of persecutions came his way, he hyper-remained all the more. As you and I see greater and greater persecution, what does it mean for us? We remain all the more in the doctrines and the deeds of Jesus Christ, just like Timothy did. That's the idea. You can tell people this week, if they ask you, what did you do this past week? You said, oh, I'm hyper-remaining. I'm remaining in the doctrines and deeds of Jesus Christ. That's what we do when difficulty comes. Now, to this, notice Paul adds in verse 11 what he suffered, the persecutions, the sufferings. Timothy followed those types of things. But what's interesting is Paul singles out Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. And the question is, why does he single out those towns for his sufferings? Well, I think he does because this was his first missionary journey. And I think Paul looked upon his sufferings at these cities in some sort of a fond way. Not because he enjoyed suffering, but because he remembers that the Lord had rescued him from them all. Now let's begin with Antioch. Antioch here that's being talked about is not the Antioch that's in Syria, but rather the one that is in Galatia, Antioch, Pisidia. And there Paul preached the gospel, he and Barnabas, but the persecution started growing. And so bad was the persecution that he had to flee to Iconium. Iconium was the city in Galatia that was really the crossroads of the world. It was one of the wealthiest cities in all of Asia Minor. And it was the crossroads to Macedonia and Achaia. Oops, I hear the hum again. Personality coming through again, but uh, I'm not sure... <laughs> All right, so from here, nope, it's got to be something else. Sure. Way up. Okay. How's that? All right, I'll keep going. From there, notice Paul, he went to Iconium, and I think I mentioned that that's this very wealthy city. Paul's preaching there, and the persecution stirred up by the Jews is so bad that he ends up being stoned there and he has to flee. He flees from there to Lystra, and at Lystra, he's stoned to the point of death, and they drag him, leaving him for dead, out of the city. 
And you might say to yourself, why does he rejoice or single these things out? Well, it's because the Lord had rescued him. In fact, as Paul says that the Lord had rescued him, he's alluding to Psalm 34, 19. Psalm 34, 19 is a psalm of David where David wrote that the afflictions are many for the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And the reason I think that that's important for us to think about that psalm, because remember, David was one of God's anointed and he suffered. In fact, David probably wrote it when he was fleeing from Saul, and yet the Lord delivered him from death there. Remember, the Philistines wanted to kill him. The Lord delivered him there. And so, yes, David knew what it was to be persecuted and hated, and yet the Lord really did deliver him. A thousand years after that, Jesus Christ, the greater David, he fulfills that passage. And you might ask yourself, well, how did the Lord deliver Christ after all he died on the cross? But on the third day, he was raised again. Remember, as the Apostle Paul is penning 2 Timothy, he's awaiting certain death. In fact, he ends up dying at the hands of the Romans, and yet he could still say that the Lord would deliver him all. Why? Because he was heading towards the resurrection. And so that's our attitude, dear brothers and sisters, no matter what persecution or hardships come our way, the Lord really will deliver us from them all. We're heading for the resurrection to come, and that's how Paul and Timothy persevered. Now, I want to show you a list here of Paul's extraordinary sufferings from 2 Corinthians. He really did suffer in an extraordinary way for the sake of the gospel. Listen to what he wrote in 2 Corinthians. And by the way, he's writing this to refute the super apostles who were claiming to speak for God, even though they were really false teachers. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25, Paul said, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. Now, he says insane because he's boasting and he doesn't want to do so. He says, I more so, and far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Now, I'm going to keep reading. If you have your Bibles open, the next three verses, verses 26 through 28, he says, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me for concern for all the churches, unquote. Wow. Paul suffered, and he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And Timothy, by standing up to the false teachers in Ephesus, was continuing that way of living, standing up against persecution and hyper-remaining in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, we have to know that in the last days, we are not as Christians promised a bed of roses, but rather trials, tribulations, and persecution. In fact, that's the promise that Paul talks about here in verses 12 through 13. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 13, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now notice here, Paul begins by talking about those who desire to live godly in Christ will be, per, will be persecuted. Now I want to define what does it mean to live godly? What does it mean to live a godly life? Well, it does not mean to follow the whims or the desires of the false teacher or the legalist. Think about for Timothy, he's dealing with false teachers who are saying you don't eat that food, you can't get married. If, they, if Timothy followed those doctrines, that is not godly living. Nor is it godly if you and I follow after the whims of some legalist in our lives. So what does it mean to live a godly life? It means living a life in accordance with the commands that come from Jesus Christ and his apostles. The terms of the new covenant. Now I'm going to talk more about this in our application, but there are many people who you might look at and say, wow, they gave up this, they did something for Lent. Boy, they must be really godly. But at the end of the day, I would submit to you, some of these people aren't godly. They're actually contradicting the terms of the new covenant. And even though they seem pious on the outside, inwardly they're like ravenous wolves. Well, we'll talk about that. But notice those who do live according to the terms of the new covenant, they will be persecuted. Now, I don't think Paul, when he says this, is saying you're absolutely going to be persecuted no matter what if you're a believer. Providentially, God brings persecution as he sees fit for our good and for the sake of his glory. So are there cases of some Christian living a godly life and forgoing persecution? Oh, yes, I'm sure there is. But this is normative. This is normally the way it is during the last days. Now, one thing about translation, notice the but that you have here in verse 13. If I was writing the Eric Dauma version, it'd be a very limited printing, by the way. The but would be rendered and. It's not an adversative so much as it's a connector. Because why? Being persecuted is connected to and evil men, and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Why do we suffer persecution? Because these imposters are going from bad to worse in the last days. And notice how Paul describes them. He uses two participles. The first participle is an active voice, one saying, they're deceiving. These imposters are deceiving those who are listening to them and their false doctrine. But there's also a passive voice participle, they're being deceived. And our application, I'll show you, these imposters or false teachers are often being deceived by the demonic realm. We'll put that together in our application. Okay, now, it's interesting to note that the imposters that Paul is referring to here are what Jesus Christ called wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they appear to be a believer. They appear to be pious in their doctrines. But remember, Jesus warned us in Matthew 7, 16 that we are to judge them and know them by their fruit. Now, what does it mean to judge them and know them by their fruit? Well, fruit is both their doctrine, what they teach, and how they act, their deed. It's both and. So if you're around some teacher or someone who proclaims to be a teacher of the Lord, and they're teaching a doctrine that is different than the doctrines that come from the apostles, they're a $3 bill. That's bad fruit. What if they live in such a way routinely in their life where they neglect and negate the terms of the new covenant? Well, that's bad fruit. They should be rejected. 
Now, I say this because as you go out the door today, you're going to be going into a culture that's favorite verse. You know what the favorite verse, I think, in America is? Judge not. I'll tell you why. Because I used to work out at this workout club, and I don't know how many times when I was trying to witness to somebody, that was the only verse that they knew. They didn't know any of the other parts of the Bible, but they knew the part of Matthew 7, 1, the very beginning, where it says, judge not. You pull out your gospel, tell them their need for repentance, and they say, well, judge not. And I'd always respond to them saying, why don't you finish the rest of the verse? Because the rest of the verse in Matthew 7, 1 into 2 says, judge not. For in the same way that you judge, it will be judged unto you. And by the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. See, what Jesus was prohibiting was not all forms of judgment. He asked us to judge and determine who is a false teacher and who is not. What Jesus was prohibiting was not all judgment, but hypocritical judgment. And brothers and sisters, that's why you and I have to live out the doctrines, not just have them in our mouths and in our ears. Because if you and I don't live it out, we end up not adorning the scriptures, but bringing disrepute upon them. And so that's why Paul had asked Timothy, and by extension, all Christians to follow his example. Now, let me come to a couple of points of application. By the way, next week, I'm going to be talking about the importance of Scripture. And there were so many concepts, this actually all fits in with that, but I couldn't get into all of it. So that's why we're only covering so many verses this morning. But a couple of application points. Number one, the apostles' doctrines must be emulated today because the apostles spoke for Christ. So don't let anyone say, well, you know what, I'm a red-letter Christian. Er, that's a wrong answer. Jesus said, whoever receives the apostles is receiving him. Number two, we must be doers of the word so that we can say to others, follow me. The idea of being imitators of Christ isn't because we want people to follow us, but rather we want people to follow Christ and we don't want to detract from the message. Okay, so let's begin with number one. Dear ones, I would submit to you that we in the United States today have the same choice before us that Timothy did. Timothy was facing down false teachers, and they were teaching false doctrines that came from the demonic realm. So ultimately, Timothy's choice was, am I going to follow the apostle Paul and therefore undergo persecution, or am I going to follow these other teachers and follow the ways of the demons? That's really what was before him. Now, that's the same choice before us. Are we going to follow the way of the apostles and therefore the way of Christ? Or are we going to follow the doctrines of demons and the way that it becomes very seductive to follow the doctrines of demons is if you do, you won't suffer nearly the way you do as if you follow the truth. Now, let me give you an example from Scripture. We're going to turn here in a minute. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Colossians chapter 2. Remember in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was writing to a people who had accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. They had trusted in him by faith. But false teachers started saying to them that Christ wasn't sufficient for provision in their life. In other words, they started teaching these false teachers that the demons were actually controlling their fate. And so if you wanted to have a bumper crop or make sure your children didn't have some abnormality or some sort of illness... These false teachers said, you need help from the angels to protect you from the demons. But what that did is it led them away from the sufficiency of having Christ alone. 
And as you're going to see, the doctrine that these men were teaching came from the demonic realm. Listen to what Paul said. Colossians 2, 20 through 22, Paul said, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Now, I want to begin at the very first part of this verse, verse 20. Notice Paul says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, what does it mean to die with Christ? What does that mean? How do you die with Christ? Well, what it means is the moment you trusted upon Jesus Christ, you were positionally with him. And therefore, you're dead to the world. Now, let me explain what I mean by positionally. How many here have ever made a reservation at a restaurant? Let's say you make a reservation next Friday at your favorite restaurant. Positionally, you're there, even though physically you're not, because you have a reservation. Now, I know human beings can goof up reservations, and there are times when they fail to keep them, but the Lord Jesus will never fail to keep you. He's omnipotent, and he's omniscient. So the moment you believed, you are with Christ, and therefore you're dead to the world. In fact, notice what Paul says, because you're with Christ, you're dead to the elementary principles. And some claim that these elementary principles are like the ABCs of learning or the beginning of mathematics or the elementary principles of religion. That is not true. Bob has shown this, and we have many scholars who have proven this, that the term stoichion here is a reference to the demonic realm. So what is Paul really saying? What he's really saying is if you came to faith and therefore died with Christ, you're dead to the demons. You're dead to them. You're to be unresponsive to them. You are dead to the demonic realm. And he asks the question, then why are you still submitting to their commands? Why are you submitting to their decrees? Now, what are their decrees? Notice verse 21. He gives us some examples. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Does everyone see that? Now, what was Timothy facing in Ephesus? Let us, let us relate it back to 2 Timothy. Timothy was dealing with false teachers that were saying, you can't eat that food. Well, they were saying, do not taste. Where does that doctrine come from? According to 1 Timothy 4.1, that's a doctrine of demons. According to Colossians 2.20, what is it? It's a doctrine of demons. But doesn't it sound so pious? Wow. Jim or whoever doesn't eat bacon. Wow, he must be really a holy roller. No, he's actually compromising on the sufficiency of Christ. That's what he's doing. What about the false teachers in Ephesus who said, you can't get married? Wow, those guys are really pious. No, they're actually following a doctrine of demons. Where did Jesus say that you can't get married? Are you going to follow the doctrine that comes from the demons or the doctrines that come from the apostles and therefore the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, that's what's at stake. Brothers and sisters, notice here in Paul's writings, he says that ultimately these doctrines are the teachings of men. But what you and I have to put together is where did these men get these teachings? Notice up above, they got it from the demonic realm. Brothers and sisters, those who teach different doctrines, if you come across them, they are not morally neutral. And they are designed by the demonic realm 
to lead you away from the doctrines of the apostles and therefore from the doctrines of Christ. So in your daily walk, what you want to do is break down in your mind, is this something that comes from the apostles and from Christ in the New Testament? And if it does not, that is a doctrine of demons used by them to dissuade you from following the sufficiency of Christ. Now, let's get into some practical examples here. Oftentimes, people will follow some sort of religious tradition in their life. And the question is, when we're following a tradition, is it the tradition of the apostles, which is really the scriptures, or are we following some other man's tradition, maybe even our own? That's the question. So notice here in 1 Corinthians 11:2, Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me and everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Now I want you to notice here in blue, Paul is talking about traditions. Now sometimes Roman Catholics will glean onto this. They'll grab onto it and they'll say, Aha! Paul has his traditions and we as the Roman Catholic Church have our traditions. You see, there's nothing wrong with following tradition. But not so fast. Because you see, when Paul's talking about his traditions, he's talking about the very teachings of Scripture. He's talking about the very doctrines that come from the apostles. We see the same thing again in 2 Thessalonians 3 6. Paul says, Now we commanded you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. The tradition that Paul has isn't some tradition like every Thursday I watch football with my brother and we have spaghetti. That's not the tradition that Paul's talking about. He's talking about the doctrines that he gives to us and the other apostles in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. Now, I want you to think about an example of a tradition that many people in America are engaged in. I'm just giving one example. You could come up with hundreds. But think about the tradition of Lent. Let's use that as an example. What happens in Lent? Hundreds and maybe you might say hundreds of thousands of Americans follow this. Well, in Lent, people give up something because they want to be more holy, be more righteous. And they reason, after all, Jesus suffered for 40 days in the wilderness. And Jesus ended up suffering on the cross So they're going to go through a little bit of suffering and give up something for Lent. But here's the problem with that. The problem with that tradition, the risk for us is that you and I can become our own false teacher or a false teacher to others by making promises that Jesus Christ never made. Let me ask you the question, where did Jesus promise in the Bible from his writings that come through the apostles, that if you give up something for Lent, you're going to be more holy, or you're going to be more righteous, or you're going to be more prone to doing that which is right in God's eyes. He never says such a thing, does he? That's nowhere found in the scriptures. And so do you see then the tradition of Lent ends up being an attack or can be on the sufficiency of of Jesus Christ. Let me mention what Jesus did give us. Jesus gave us what we call ordinances, or here at Gospel of Grace, we often call them the means of grace. So let's give an example, the Lord's Supper. 
When God gives us an ordinance that we are to follow from the new covenant, there's two things that are true of it. There's a command that he gives and that there's a promise that he gives. So think about in the Lord's Supper, doesn't Jesus command us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, he says, do this. There's an imperative that you and I are commanded to do the Lord's Supper. Where is the command for Lent? Where is the command? No, we don't care about the command that comes from the Lord. We're just going to go our own way. Like Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament who thought, well, we'll just approach God any way we want and offer the profane fire that he never ordained. There's a second thing that's true. When God gives an ordinance, he gives a promise with it. Remember, when Bob and I read to you the words of institution from the Lord's Supper, in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, As often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The promise is that by you and I doing the Lord's Supper, we're keeping in the remembrance of our mind. Remember, he says, do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance, we're proclaiming what Christ did. He died on the cross for us. But also, we're proclaiming what he's going to do. He's coming for us. So you have a command, we are to do it, and you have a promise that we will remember and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Where are the same commands and promises for Lent? And so do you see then that someone who gives up something for Lent, it may seem holy, but is it really a doctrine that comes from the apostles or does it come from some other source? Dear ones, the worst thing to do is to become your own false teacher and start making promises to yourself. If I do this, I'm going to be more holy. Really, I thought the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you couldn't be more holy. I'm going to give up something that Christ never commanded, therefore I'll be more righteous. Well, I thought the moment we believed, we had all the righteousness that we need found in Jesus Christ. We can become our own false lawgivers, binding ourselves to traditions, that Christ never gave. Now, I also want to talk about following the apostles in the sense of not just following their doctrines, but also following their conduct or their deeds. That we have to be not just hearers of the word, but also doers. In fact, that's what we learned today. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.10, he says, not only did you follow my teaching, but also my conduct. And by the way, the apostle Paul isn't the only one who said that Conduct is important. Notice what Peter said, 1 Peter 2.21. He said, For you had been called for this purpose. He's talking to all Christians. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So what, what, excuse me, what Peter is reminding the Christian of is that if Jesus Christ suffered and the apostles suffered, you and I more than likely are going to suffer for his name as well. Again, that's something that's promised for the people of God in the last days. But what does it mean to follow in the steps of Christ? There's kind of a boogaboo today where you have a lot of social gospel teachers say that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus, and they're really not. So let me help you understand what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. There's two distinctions that you have to make in your mind. The first is there are things that Jesus did where his actions are described in Scripture, but they are not prescribed for us. There are passages that are descriptive of what he did, but they're not prescriptive for what we will do. So let's take the example, Jesus walked on water. 
Well, I'm supposed to follow in his steps. That's it. I'm starting a new water skiing team. I'm walking on water. Jesus did. No. Even though the, the scriptures describe Jesus doing it, they don't prescribe it for me doing it and you either. We'll just sink down. That's how it works. Okay? What about Jesus going into the wilderness? In fact, many people who celebrate Lent, they'll say, well, Jesus went to the wilderness and he suffered for 40 days. I'm going to try to do something similar. They missed the whole point. Why did Jesus go into the wilderness for 40 days without food and suffer? Because he had to be the faithful son that Israel never was. Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years and they failed. Why? Because they were sinners like you and I. So Jesus Christ comes on the scene of history and for 40 days and 40 nights, he succeeds where Israel didn't. Why? Because he's the faithful son. So why in the world am I trying to prove to the world that by for 40 days, if I don't eat something, don't do something, that I'm the faithful son? No, Jesus didn't command you to go into the wilderness for 40 days. He did it for you. Now, the second category are there are things that Jesus did that they are described of him, like prayer, and they're also prescribed for us, like prayer. So take prayer. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives us his model prayer. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. There's a direct command. And so you see then, it's not just descriptive of what Christ did. It's also prescribed for us. So that's what it means to follow in the steps of Jesus Christ. If something has to be prescribed for the people of God through Christ and his apostles for us to be following in his steps today. Okay, now let me talk about a second element of this. Again, following Christ and the apostles means not just following their doctrines, but their lifestyle and living it out. Notice Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, when Paul says there in blue, follow my example, he's not talking just about his doctrine that's always primary, but also his deeds. In fact, notice the phrase here, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In other words, there's other representatives. It's not just Paul, but he says, follow those who are observing and doing what we do. The term walk here, peripateo, means to live it out. And Paul is saying, look at those who are living it out, the doctrines and deeds that we have, and you follow them. Dear brothers and sisters, that means you and I are also called to be good examples to the unregenerate, to the new convert in both our doctrine and also our deeds. And so that's why we see in the scriptures, like in the book of James, we are to be not just hearers of the word, but we're also to be doers. Listen to what James says. James 1, through 24, he says... But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Let's stop there in verse 22. What if someone is a hearer of the word? They have the doctrine here, but they don't live it out. They're not a doer. Well, James is saying that they're deluding themselves. By the way, James does not attack salvation by faith alone. He just qualifies what kind of faith is it 
that really saves. It's one that leads to action. You really act on what you truly believe. Now, notice he, in verse 23, he's going to talk about an analogy with a mirror. Let me read that to you and explain it. Verse 23, he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately, notice the term immediately, forgotten what kind of person he was. Now, how is James using this analogy of the mirror? We've got to be a little careful that we don't mix analogies because Paul uses the mirror. Remember in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he talks about looking at the mirror dimly. Paul's purpose is different, though, than James. Let James use his analogy as he sees fit. James' point with the mirror is that, like the Word of God, it accurately depicts who a person is. And so if the Word of God has revealed to you the sins of your life and you're needing to live differently, to be a hearer of the Word and not a doer is like a man who does the same thing looking at a mirror. He looks at the reality of who he really is and he quickly forgets about it because he doesn't probably like it. That's the way it is for the person who is deluded, who hears the Word but doesn't live it out. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called not just to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. And in so doing, following the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. Let me leave you with this. The reason Paul wanted Timothy and by extension all Christians to be hearers and not just doers of the word, or as he said, be imitators of him, was because, yes, you and I are called to be light in this world, not just to dispel the darkness, but so that others will see the glory of the light and they'll know something of who Jesus Christ is. So we can't be just hearers of the word. We have to be doers as well. In fact, that's what Jesus said here in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Verse 16, he said, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Dear brothers and sisters, if there was ever a trial and you were on trial for being a Christian, is there enough evidence in your walk to convict you? That's something that I often think about when I'm driving down the highway, do I really want to put that Christian logo on the back? Sometimes the way I drive isn't worthy of putting the fish on. I have to change too. May God give us the grace and the ability to change. And that's one thing I want to mention in 1 John 1, 8 through 9. Remember, John is very clear that we are not going to be perfect this side of glory. He says that if we, that is Christians, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we will fall short. And our goal ultimately is not to make converts of us, but of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the grand point is that when you and I preach the gospel, are we living in such a way that the gospel is adorned? Or are we living in such a way that the gospel is scorned. Let me say that again. Are you and I living in such a way that the gospel is adorned? Or are we living in such a way 
that the gospel is scorned. Brothers and sisters, it's my prayer that you and I would be like Paul and Timothy and those who followed his example in both doctrine and deed so that in our weeks and months and years ahead that we have with the unregenerate, with the new converts, with those in our lives that God places there, you and I can look them in the eye and say, follow me. Follow my doctrine, follow my deed, and you'll know something of what it is to follow the apostles in their teachings and therefore the teachings of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that you would give us grace to be not just hearers of the word, but doers, Lord. We know that we do fall short of your perfection, this side of glory. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that through your spirit, you would enable us to be those who live lives that are pleasing in your sight, that we may be a sweet aroma, but also that we would be a light to the world, that we would indeed dispel darkness of evil doctrines, but that others would see our teachings and our deeds and that they would want to know who Christ is. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for our relatives who don't know you, our friends, our co-workers. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us ample opportunity in the weeks and months ahead to proclaim the greatness of who Christ is and what he's done. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would regenerate hearts before us so that they may believe the truth of your word and that they may be saved. We pray that you would do this through us and for us and all for the sake of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you will, for the benediction. This is Jude 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. God bless all of you, and we'll see you downstairs for the, for the meal.